Here in Exodus chapter 14, we're going to dive into the midst of an incredibly tense situation. There is no way for me to adequately communicate how trying this moment is when we arrive in Exodus chapter 14 and verse 15. It is impossible for me to paint an elaborate enough verbal display for you to fully come to grips with all of the emotion that is contained in this moment in time. This is highly stressful. Panic has set in. The direction of an entire movement hinges on this moment in time. And I want to read just one verse, and within it is contained what I believe to be a mandate for us corporately, that is us as a church, and then us individually, spiritually speaking. Moses is now hearing from God in Exodus 14. I'll read just verse 15. And the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel that they go forward. And we're going to work our way back to this moment. But what God has just assigned Moses to both say and then follow through on and do, humanly speaking, is impossible. God is going to reveal his overcoming strength to Moses and the children of Israel. There is a man named Asaph. I can imagine him in my mind, sitting in a lonely, darkened room in Jerusalem, perhaps just a flickering candle going by near him. Asaph penned the 77th Psalm. Asaph was a thoughtful man. We know from his writings that Asaph was contemplative, that as one author said, there was a dash of sadness about him. He was a believer, there is no doubt, but he was in agony. He was struggling. There was some anxiety in his life. And after unleashing all of his anxieties, or many of them, in the 77th Psalm, Asaph, sitting there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pins these words in Psalm 77, 19, Thy way is in the sea. And thy path in the great waters, and thy footsteps are not known. Thou leddest thy people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Asaph, in his mind, having given voice to his struggles and his anxiety, is now finding help and hope in this account from Exodus 14. He is reminding himself that though he may not see the way forward, the mandate exists that he must go forward, and he finds the reminder of God's overcoming strength here in this passage. And that's what I want to communicate to you today. The first thing I want us to understand about this passage of Scripture in our lives as application goes is this. God knows right where you are. God knows right where you are. Now, you might think to yourself, of course God knows where I am. God is omniscient. God knows everything. But what I mean to say is not only does God know where you are physically located at this moment, God knows where you are in life. God knows your mental state, and he is aware of your emotional condition. 
God is aware of your spiritual status at this moment. And your warmth and heat or your coldness or lukewarmness. God knows right where you are. If we were to back up to the beginning of Exodus chapter 14 and work our way all the way through, we would be reminded that the children of Israel have just left Egypt. They have witnessed God in a miraculous fashion reveal his power in the ten plagues. Each of those plagues is, in effect, overthrowing one of the deities of Egypt, their pagan false gods. God is declaring that he alone is God. You could not have been one of the children of Israel leaving Egypt and not been aware of the fact that God, the true God, is all-powerful. As they left Egypt, they spoiled the Egyptians And the Egyptians lavished on them much wealth, materially speaking. And so this bondage period has come to an end. Children of Israel are leaving Egypt. They are working their way out of Egypt, having spoiled the Egyptians and witnessed the all-powerful God. And we arrive in Exodus 14.2 and we read something that I'm certain upon the first reading is going to leave you scratching your head. Here's what Exodus 14, 2 says. Now God is giving Moses some direction. God is Moses' GPS here. And he says, speak unto the children of Israel. And here is what you will say. Turn and encamp before Piharoth, between Migdal and the sea, over against Baal-Zephon, before it shall ye encamp by the sea. How many of you have ever been to Piharoth? Anyone? Any Pehatharites? Anybody ever studied all the geographical intricacies of Baalzephon? No? Could you open up uh, uh, Google Earth right now and go right to Migdal? You could find the Red Sea, I'm assuming that, right? I don't mean to bore you with all of these different geographical intricacies, but here's what I want you to grasp. The children of Israel are undeniably in a perfect dead end. There is no doubt we can study and grasp that there is a cavernous mountain on one side, there is the desert, there is the Red Sea, and coming towards them is the Egyptian army. Now, we can also not doubt that God clearly and explicitly directed Moses to take them right there. Why? I can say to you that there is no logical reason, humanly speaking, for the children of Israel to be where they are. But there is a divine reason. And in that alone, we must find comfort. A lot of what goes on in our lives, we like to be able to reason through. We want to gain understanding of why our life is as it is. Can I tell you that much of what you will encounter in this life and much of what I will live through in this life makes no logical sense to us whatsoever. But we rest in the fact that there is divine sense behind it. God knew that Pharaoh would look at the situation the children of Israel were in and he would deem it to be an impossible situation. God 
put the children of Israel in a perfect dead end. And here was his reasoning. He says in verse 3, For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are entangled in the land. The wilderness hath shut them in. If I was Moses, I would have said back to God, He's right. He's going to think that because that's exactly what's happened here. He's right. And then God says something, and it is peculiar. In verse 4, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that he shall follow after them, and I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his host, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord, and they did so. Now there's a lot wrapped up in that verse. One of the most amazing facets of this predicament that the children of Israel are in is that God has literally birthed within the heart of Pharaoh a desire to pursue them, which means there are times where that is unleashed upon us by God's design. Now, what was God's design? His design was that all the Egyptians would know that he was God. And the children of Israel obeyed and did what God said. God knows right where you are. This also leads me to this awareness. God knows our enemy. God knows our enemy. That phrase that God would harden Pharaoh's heart is used throughout the early chapters of Exodus. Why? One scholar said this, and I tend to agree with what he said. It's a literary device that shows that Pharaoh is not as big and as bad as he thinks he is. He can't even control his own heart. The reality is, Pharaoh's heart was plenty hard enough on its own. But God is in complete control to the degree that he even knows the enemy. It seems as though God is creating a toxic mix of hardship here. He is the author and the designer of this impossible situation, all the way to maneuvering the enemy into place. God knew that he had to get Pharaoh to the edge of the Red Sea. Now, here's the amazing thing. God could have taken Pharaoh out at any point in time. God could have done it right back there in Egypt. He could have whipped up a sandstorm. He could have had a sand lizard come up. He could have done anything. Sand lizard. You don't hear that a lot on Sunday morning. You did here. He could have done anything. But he is going to work a situation so that so clearly it is that he, God, is overpowering Pharaoh and all of Egypt will know that he is God. God's maneuvering Pharaoh. He so knew Pharaoh, he so understood the enemy that the Bible says in verse 8, And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued after the children of Israel just as God said he would. God is in complete control of Pharaoh. Now, from this, I derive this simple principle. We fear our enemies too much and God not enough. We fear our enemies so much and we don't fear God nearly enough. We should be more concerned about God's glory than we are our relief because God is working his plan as we've been studying the Lord's Prayer. Jesus teaches us to pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The first petition in the Lord's Prayer is that God's name would be esteemed, that God would be viewed as holy. It's not a personal petition. 
And here we are layering on that biblical principle. We are so concerned with our relief when God is working something for his glory. And he's not doing it so that we'll be miserable. His design was never that the children of Israel would be miserable. His design that they would rest comfortably by faith that he was in complete control. But our problem is we are so afraid of our enemy and not nearly enough afraid of God. God's bigger than our enemy. He knows right where we are, and he knows our enemy, and he knows our weakness and our need. You ever wondered how you would respond in some of these Bible stories? I do. If I was Daniel, I don't think I would have opened the window to pray. I think I'd have kept the window closed. I'd have prayed in secret. I think if I was Daniel, I was chucked in the lion's den, I would have screamed I'll be politically correct. I would have used to would say like a little girl, but that's not politically correct. I would have screamed. I would have screamed. Like a chicken. Can I say that? Nope. A chicken was just offended. I just got a text. I apologize. The Poultry Association of America does not want me to say that. If I was David, I don't know that I would have ever plowed out into the valley, man. I would have probably eating some of the raisins that were on the cart that I brought for my brothers. I wouldn't have touched the cheese. No worries there. How would I have reacted if I was in the camp looking at Moses? Number one, I assure you, I would have wondered about Moses' fitness to lead. I would have just looked around and I would have thought, this is the most ridiculous military position you could put us in, man. After all, we're armed with like uh, nothing. We've got nothing. I would have probably taken a tent stake or two and started whittling the end, trying to fashion some weapon. I would have waded out into the Red Sea, taken a look across. Can I swim this bad boy? The bottom of my robe would have been wet now. I'd have probably pulled it up. I don't know. Been a lot of things going on. Circling in dust, I assure you, I'd have been talking to other people. Like, can you imagine this idiot got us here? I would have started to think, we can probably negotiate with Egypt. They will probably take us back. Here's the first thing they do in verse 10. And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians marched after them. And they were sore afraid. And the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. Here's the first thing they do. They saw that the enemy was coming. They looked up and they saw, perhaps it was a cloud of dust rising up from this multitude of Egyptian soldiers. And these were choice warriors. They had chariots and they had fast horses and they had gleaming weapons. And they're coming down on the children of Israel. May I say this to you? Their flaw was not in the fact that they saw their enemy. Their flaw was they were intimidated by their enemy. We are mandated by Scripture to be aware that we have an adversary, the devil, who walketh about seeking whom he may devour. We're told, be alert, be sober, be watchful, be aware that you are engaged in spiritual warfare. Just don't be intimidated by your enemy. I was running in my neighborhood a couple of years ago. Two dogs of my neighbors made it out of their backyard. And as I was running across the street at a safe distance, one of those dogs came up and bit my leg. I had never been bit by a dog before. Having been bitten by one, I never want it to happen again. Dogs are scary. Now when I come to your house, you say, do you want me to put my dog away? Yes, I do. I do. I was reading, I thought this was great. A British newspaper bore the headline, Clergyman Savaged by a Dog Called Satan. 
If you name your dog Satan, though, right, there's something wrong. The newspaper reported that a clergyman is recovering from being savaged by an Alsatian dog called Satan. Alan Elwood, 45, was bitten all over his body and his trousers and shirt were ripped to shreds in the farmyard attack in Somerset. It was terrifying, he said. I was lucky to get out of it, Mr. Elwood told the son. The man who wrote this then added on, Reverend Elwood is neither the first nor the last to be attacked by Satan. He said, we often underestimate the extent to which the enemy seeks to disrupt our lives. Are you aware of that? Scripture tells us that we're supposed to be alert. Scripture tells us that he walks about seeking whom he may devour. Scripture tells us he is the accuser of the brethren. Hey, by the way, if you're looking to fill the post of accusation of the brethren, that post has already been filled by Satan. We're not hiring right now. The accuser of the brethren, the pursuer of souls, the purveyor of death, the father of lies, the great dragon. Be aware that you have an enemy and he does want to disrupt your lives and he knows just who to bring in and he knows just what to say and he knows just what to do. Realize that much of what ails you is a spiritual battle. We must be equipped accordingly. We can acknowledge the enemy. We just don't have to be intimidated by the enemy. Let's back that up with Scripture. Daniel wrote in Daniel eleven thirty two. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. James wrote this. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Peter said, resist the devil steadfast in the faith. Paul told the believers at Ephesus, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. It is a mistake not to acknowledge the enemy. But it is a greater mistake To acknowledge the Lord and then keep our eyes on the enemy. Acknowledge the enemy's presence and then keep your eyes on the Lord. He knows our weakness. When we can't believe that God is in control of our situation, we fear. They saw the enemy. That's what the Bible tells us. And then it says they were sore afraid. There's not a lot of exposition needed there. They were sore afraid. They were extremely afraid For their lives. And then they prayed. They prayed many I believe without faith. This was largely a faithless generation of people. In fact over and again. They whine and murmur and complain in the wilderness. To such a degree that they will never make it to the promised land. So this prayer that we hear offered up, I have no doubt in my mind that there were some God-fearing people who prayed by faith, but many just offered up prayers because it was the exercise they thought they would have to do, and had they been prayers of faith, we would not find them murmuring against Moses in the next verse. God knows your weakness and your need. They saw the enemy, They were sore afraid, they offered up prayer, and then they blamed. Here come the cynics, the hyperbolics, 
those who are driven by despair, those who are full of emotion, completely illogical, irrational, nonsensical, and faithless. I don't know if you're like me. I perceive that all of us are the same. Emotions make us talk. And most of the time, we say stupid things when driven by emotion. We just say stuff, and, and, and we flick it out there, and we can't pull it back. Here's what starts to happen in verse 11. They said unto Moses, We figured you out, O great and fearless leader. Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. That is complete hyperbolic speech. No, I didn't bring you out here to kill you. This is a step of faith for me too, Moses is saying. No, I'm not looking to bring you out here so that you can all die. No, that's not what I'm doing. Now, I know that Moses had a bit of a fiery temper. I know it costs him the promised land. He has a staff. He hits the rock really hard, and he hits the rock twice, and he bashes the rock, and he looks at the people, and he says, there's your water, whiners. Moses, you're not going in the promised land, man. It's just one stick, one time. Lord, I wanted to take this stick to their head so many times. So many times. I have thought of Moses in this moment as he's praying this prayer, as he's dealing with this situation. I would have desperately wanted to just clear the water with my own staff and walked across, just with a bubble of dry land around me and looked back the whole way. Could have been with me, but you're back there. I brought you out to die. Well, if that's what you think, enjoy your death in bondage as I cross the Red Sea on dry land. Anybody that starts to swim, I just point my staff at them. You know what I can do with this? Take you out. Here's something that helps me. When you realize that people's anger and libel and slander and accusation aimed at you is more a product of their own internal struggles and faithlessness than it is actually your actions, you can extend grace. They were faithless. They were fear-filled. They were in despair. They were unsatisfied with the Lord, and they aim it all at Moses. When you realize that this isn't my leadership, I've done what the Lord's told me to do, this isn't what I've done, and you hear from them, extend grace because what they are aiming at you is their own internal struggle, not actually your failure before the Lord. God knows your weakness and your need. In despair, they're questioning God. Despair will pick up and snowball and you'll end up right where the Israelites were. Just let me die out here. God knows right where you are. God knows your enemy. God knows your weakness and your need. And God knows the way out. Moses is going to step in now and he's going to begin to speak. What he says in Exodus 14, 13 is a stunner. He says this, And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not. How many of you can completely control your emotional state? Right. Yeah. 
You know, the Bible tells us that if we can't control our emotional state, we're like a city with its walls broken down. If we can't control our rage and our temper, we might, it's like a city. You're going to be overrun. I certainly cannot just tell myself, don't be afraid. I don't have that internal strength. If I'm on a flight that is extremely turbulent, my first thought is, I want off. Land it first, but I want off. If it's bouncing and bumping and there's lightning flashing and I can see the water on the window and I touch the window and I think it's only plastic anyways, how safe am I? I can't just say to myself, Chris, be not afraid. Okay. Sorry, me. You're good. I'm cool. Not afraid. This is the audacious statement that Moses makes to the people. He steps forward and he says, stop being afraid. Stand still. Did he have to say stand still because they were all frozen in fear? Or did he have to say stand still because there was chaotic activity breaking out all around the camp? Stand still when every bone in your body is crying out. Scream in anguish and fear. Get busy and fix this situation. Moses steps up and he speaks words totally against human nature. Stop being afraid and stand perfectly still and see the salvation of the Lord which... He will show you today for the Egyptians whom ye have seen today. Ye shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you and you, you shall hold your peace. I don't think that's how he wanted to say that. I think the Holy Spirit was in charge of inspiring him to say, you shall hold your peace. Because I think he wanted to say something else. You hold your peace. Stop talking. Stop moving. Stop fearing. God knows what he's going to do. Yes, but this is illogical. Right. Do you see the cloud of dust of the enemy? Yes. Have you noticed we're surrounded by a cavernous mountain in the desert and the Red Sea is right there? Yes. But Moses says, fear not, stand still, see the salvation of the Lord, and you hold your peace. And then I love what happens. And you have to study just a little bit. You read in verse 15, after Moses says, ye shall hold your peace, the Lord said unto Moses, wherefore criest thou unto me? Which indicates that after Moses just stepped up and said to everybody, hey, don't be afraid, stand still. The Egyptians that you see today, God's gonna take care of them today and you'll see them no more forever. God will fight for you, hold your peace. Oh God, help. Help us right now. Because I feel in my heart that you want us to go forward. But I'm looking around and I don't see a way out. And God says to Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Say to the people, go forward. Which indicates, get this, there are certain times where praying time is over and doing time begins. And one of the greatest pious cop-outs in all the world is, let me pray about this. Let me pray about this. Moses said, let me pray about this. And God said, hey, uh, enough praying. Let's go forward. Real quick, Lord, where? I'm all for the forward thing. I 100%. Where? Just get ready, Moses. Do you remember when Joshua was leading after Moses and Achan steals from Jericho and they send people up to AI and AI defeats them and they're all boohooing and crying and they're so sad because we lost to AI. Well, there's like death, so I shouldn't treat it that lightly. I'm off my game today. I'm so incorrect. 
Joshua is praying, Lord, help us. Why did AI defeat us? And God looks at him and says, hey man, not praying time. Get up. Somebody stole something from Jericho. Let's deal with that. Sometimes God's looking at us and he's saying, I already told you the answer. I've already written it out for you. You don't have to pray about that one. You know what you need to do. Moses, get up off of your knees and start moving forward. This is only possible with great faith and complete rest in the knowledge that God is in complete control. That's it. It's much like the disciples caught in the storm when Jesus was in the hinder part of the ship asleep on a pillow. Luke tells us there was a little pillow back there. and In effect, as soon as the head of Jesus hit the pillow, he's asleep. And the disciples are there. The storm comes raging up on them and they're starting to bail the boat out. And Jesus is asleep. This isn't a very large vessel. Jesus is asleep on the back. And as they fight for their lives... They go back to Jesus and they wake him up and they say to Jesus, Carest thou not that we perish? Do you not see that we're all going to die here? And Jesus wakes up and he calms the storm. And amazingly, he's not completely done with the disciples. But he could have said to them, You remember when we got in the boat and I said, Let's go to the other side? Yeah. Did you think when I said, let's go to the other side, I I meant we're going to go to the middle of the lake and die or that we would make it to the other side? We weren't thinking that deep. When the rain started, we panicked. I'm, I'm getting now that I might be in trouble with you. We were bailing. We were doing our best, right? Did you not remember that I've told you that I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be arrested and I'm going to be crucified there? Are we in Jerusalem out here? Well, no. We didn't know how this all worked. We thought maybe we were going to die, you were going to make it, we were bailing, everybody panicked. Sorry, Jesus. They were in the classroom with the Lord. They were hearing him teach. They just weren't learning anything. And that's us. And that's the children of Israel. You just watched 10 plagues, right? You just spoiled Egypt, right? And now you're standing out here. And within mere hours... You're already in a panic, bailing your own boat, thinking that everything is going to end. And Moses says, just go forward uh, into the water. Well, not necessarily. Now again, Moses is not a superhero. But there was a moment in time where Moses had to walk forward and like... Would you have wanted anybody looking? Like everybody, God said... Turn your backs and look the other way for a minute. And I would have tried it. Like, it's cool to look back now. God wants you to look at me now. It's going to work out. Just go forward. Where? Just go forward. Hold your stick out. Moses, what's going to happen is you're going to cross on dry land. You're going to get to the other side. You're going to hold it out again. The Egyptians are going to be chasing you. They are fast. They are mighty. They are coming. And then I'm going to close the water up. I'm going to take the Egyptians out. And you all are going to stand on the other shore. Everybody safely over. And you're going to sing a song about my care for you. So what do I do? Well, start by just holding the staff out and let's go through the sea. Now we read this in hindsight and we get it. And we've seen it depicted in movies. Terribly depicted in movies. Terrible theological foundations. 
But they make it across. They start. Somebody had to take the first step. Somebody had to walk through. Every step of the way required faith, man, because there are walls of water on either side. It's not like once they got 10 feet in, they thought, you know what? This is going to work. Their thought was, this could die. We could die at any moment. Then the Egyptians start across with their chariots, and their thought is, dude, can you throw us a bone here? We're already surrounded by water. Just stop the Egyptians. And you know what God does? He starts peeling wheels off their chariots. They're dragging them. Horses can't drag chariots without wheels. So guys get off and they start running. And the Egyptians start to realize like, we, 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 we may have picked a fight we can't win. <laughs> Whoops. We may have wrote a check we can't cash here, Pharaoh. Uh, this is a problem, man. Their God is fighting for them. I want you to notice a little pattern here. In verse 19, we're told that God stood between the Egyptians and the Israelites. In verse 21, we're told that God divided the sea. In verse 25, we're told that the Lord fought for Israel. In verse 27, that the Lord overthrew the Egyptians. In verse 30, that the Lord saved Israel. It wasn't Moses. It wasn't Moses' poor leadership that put him in a dead end. It was God's providence. It wasn't Moses who, with his staff was able to part water and rip wheels off chariots. It was all God. It's always God. It's always been God. The mandate to the children of Israel was this. Go forward. Prayer time's over. I'm not saying don't pray. I'm just saying there's some things you know are right to do. Start doing them. There are some behavioral things that you're doing that are not spiritual, that are not Christ-like, that are not honoring. Stop. You don't need to pray about it. You don't need to figure it out. Stop. Start doing right. Start moving forward. There are some things that you have sat idly by on your hands on the precipice of a step of faith for a long period of time and God is looking at you and saying, if you're waiting for the circumstances to make sense before you move forward, forget it. Go forward. I've already answered. I've already told you. Move past that. Get up and get going. No doubt in my mind, there are practical applications for us as a church. The sock is never going to be going in the right direction for us to always land the aircraft. Sometimes you've got to land against the wind. Sometimes you've got to step out before it makes perfect sense. Sometimes you've got to go forward. You have to do this act of faith. You only live once. Faith isn't just about standing still. It's about moving forward. And in Hebrews eleven twenty nine, 29, the great chapter of faith, we read, by faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land. Had they refused, certain death waited for them. Here's what I'm saying. You cannot maintain this status quo. Why continue to live this life of such deep dissatisfaction? Why continue to live on the edge of your breakdown? Why continue to live so idly? Why continue to live so wrapped up in yourself? Why continue to live so helpless and forlorn? Why continue to live so trapped? Why continue to sit? Life is passing us by. Why live less than God intended for you? Go forward. Move out. Certain death waits if you just sit here. Who wants to live the next 25 like we lived the last? Some of you can't even say you've lived 25. Good for you. I don't like you, but great. 
I don't want to do the next 45 like the first 40. I don't even know that I want to do another 45. I've got to be honest. I've seen 88 on some people. I, I don't know that I want it. I don't want to do the next five like I did the last five. But that's going to require some steps of faith by me. God has not changed. I have. God is in complete control. It's just my eyes are on the enemy. I fear the enemy more than I fear God. I just have to begin to move forward. Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.